Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with sommelier, winemaker, and restaurateur Andre Mack. He currently owns and runs Ann Sons, a ham and wine bar, and Ann Sons Buttery, a ham-centric grocery in Prospect Lefferts Gardens in Brooklyn, as well as the wine shop Vineyard. Andre is awarded the prestigious Best Young Sommelier in America and was head sommelier at Thomas Keller's French Laundry and Per Se Restaurants before he founded Mouton Noir Wines. Andre brings a relentless curiosity and optimism to everything he does, and his neighborhood and community-based, locally-minded approach to food is not only refreshing, but proving incredibly prescient in this moment and going forward. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Andre. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm super excited. Wanted to start with just what have you been cooking? What's been your sort of food regimen during this quarantine period? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, for us, we've been in a lot of sandwiches, a lot of cold cuts and kind of recipe testing for different projects and different things. But what did we what did we cook most recently that was pretty phenomenal? I would have to say lots of meat, man. You know, that's just kind of where I'm at in life. So, <laughs> but we brought up a lot of country ham that I had sliced here at the mm-hmm. store mm-hmm. and we kind of bought up and, you know, and some other stuff to make sandwiches. But, uh, you know, we had a big old cowboy steak one night. That's kind of been it. Making fresh tortillas. My thing, the best, the best vehicle and the best thing for leftovers is having plenty of fresh tortillas on hand. You know, mm. you can just dump everything in it and, and eat it, you know. So that's been it. Well, and of course, you're always operating your restaurants and the sort of different establishments you have. Has this period led you to thinking differently about the kinds of foods you're eating yourself day to day? No, not not yet. I mean, consciously, I mean, I've been thinking about those things, mm-hmm. but not necessarily have I acted on them, right? You right. know what I mean? It's like, ah, oh, you know... I should probably go for a run today, <laughs> but I didn't. But, you know, I did get on the bike this morning, so I'm feeling good. You know, first day back from vacation. But, you know, I'm, I'm a crazy person. You know, I don't eat on Mondays. Mm. That's kind of my weird intermittent fasting. Every week. I've done that for, I don't know, a couple of years now. So Mondays, I just don't eat. Interesting. That's much easier than, you know, I think before I would go through these periods where, you know, I'd fast for 30 days. Mm. My wife would, much to her chagrin, you know, she's just kind of like, dude, that's probably not the healthiest way to do it. <laughs> and so I decided that if we just did Mondays, that would give me 52 days. And that would be much longer than the 30 days that I would do before. Hmm. What's been your relationship to drinking during this period? H- have you been drinking a lot of wine? I have. It's peaked. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I have to say, you know, it was one of those things where, at the beginning, I think we all were like, we have no idea what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to inundate. And we just, you know, it was like drinking at five. And then it went from to four to three. And then it was like, okay, well, maybe just a, a short little cocktail, you know, at like noon with lunch. And, you know, and it was just like, it just became too much at some point. And I pulled back, you know, and I think I wouldn't say COVID never ended, but, you know, it kind of kind of peaked a little bit and people were talking about coming back and then the riot started, Black Lives Matter and all those things. And I felt like it was, for me, it was at least like, you know, kind of a a wake up call to be like, hey, 
you know, this might be something that I want to live, that I want to remember and, and definitely experience with my children. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was something that I didn't want to drink my way through. I didn't want to smoke my way through it. It was something that I'd, that I wanted to, to be fully present. Mm. And so the drinking tapered off, the excessive drinking tapered off. And um, so now we're back to like, you know, one bottle with dinner. Nice. There's samples that are floating around here and there based on our various business, but there's no sales reps or anybody coming by to, to present new, new products or new wine. So it's back under, under the wraps. Like we're feeling like, you know, beer while we're cooking, one bottle of wine with dinner. And then, you know, if I needed something else, a little late night thing, it's probably, you know, some whiskey or something like that. As I'm winding down, as the kids are going, migrating upstairs and I'm migrating down to my studio on the bottom floor of, the, of our brownstone. Mm. Could you share with us your sort of overall ethos when it comes to wine? What's your approach to thinking about and talking about wine? It's pretty different in that sense of, for me, wine, it, I like to talk about wine like I would like two guys talking about, you know, hip hop or, or what they like to eat. I think sometimes wine gets interlaced into the geekdom, which is cool. I like that, right? There's something about having a really geeky level conversation with people and you get to geek out and that's really fun. But those can become tiresome over a very long period of time. And so right. for me, I think, you know, wine is for the people. Wine is, I take a very European approach to wine where it's not a meal if there's not wine on the table. Wine is a condiment, right? It belongs on your table <laughs> next to, you know, the salt and pepper shaker, especially in the wines that we make. All the wines that we make, you know, the common theme through all those is acid. You know, acid's an amplifier. The reason why you put salt on food, lemon on seafood is to make food taste better. Mm. It's a reason why you select the food first at a restaurant and then select the wine. You know, there's a reason why there's pickles on a cheeseburger. You know, it's science. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so kind of in the same way for us, you know, it was always been about food first. And my family and my wife's family and now in our own nuclear family, it's pretty food driven. And I think wine follows suit. Then it, for me, it expands beyond that, meaning that I want to make wines and drink wines that make my life better. Mm. You know, it's a condiment to life. It makes that book you're reading better, conversations with friends better, right? It's that same thing that we always kind of reenact or try to chase is, is like, oh, hey, you know what? You remember that time we were in Portugal and we we're eating mussels on the beach and we were drinking this three euro wine and, and that wine was so amazing and we've been trying to track it down and then finally we found it. And then you realize that, Ah oh, man, it's not as good as we thought it tasted or all this other stuff. But what it really was, what made that wine taste really great was the ambiance, everything else mm. surrounding it. And I think wine can really do that. And so it's always been my philosophy to preach wine, that how wine makes everybody's life better. Right. I'd love for you to elaborate on this relationship between pleasure and wine and also the relationship between time and wine, the time in which you drink a wine, but also the time it takes to produce, to make, and yeah. obviously store and then drink. It's kind of like this thing for me, I've always felt like it is consumable art, digestible art, so to speak, where you, you actually get to taste it and it no longer becomes art. It becomes a memory after you, you mm. drink it. You know, I try to tell people that it is elitist by nature, right? Because it's not something that you could just run out back and turn the tap on and fill up your glass. It is mother nature. You know, I always talk about, there's not much competition in the art of making wine. Everybody has a community, everybody talks, everybody shares information, 
because we're all battling one thing and that's mother nature, right? Some more than others, Mm -hmm. right? In that sense of some people are a lot more hands-on, some people are a lot more hands-off and really kind of let mother nature do its work and kind of harness it and kind of guide it where you want it to go. You have that kind of thing going on. And on the other side, you just can't make it every single year. If you mess up, it's something, you know, that's why vintages are important, right? You know what I mean? Because each year, mother nature, if you believe in vintage variation, which I do, um, then you understand the nature of making wine and that it is really dependent on what's happening while it's being made, but also what happened when it was made, after, you know, while we made it. You know, I talk about a lot about what drew me to wine was my curiosity. And I think a lot of other people in that, in that field, you know, it's people that are very curious and, you know, and every time wine is presented to me, it's my curiosity that constantly has me circling back around to say, why does this wine taste this way? You know, is Mm. it something that they're doing in the vineyard? Is it something that they're doing in the winery? Right. Those are two separate, separate things. And I don't know if I answered your question. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you definitely did. And, you know, it makes me think about the relationship to the sort of climate emergency we're in as well. Mm -hmm. How do you think about wine in that context? It's been there in the back of my mind. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like my own mortality. When I'm left with my thoughts, maybe I think about it quite a bit, Mm. but, you know, I keep busy. I just know that you see it, you know, I mean, it's frustrating in some ways when you talk to people or you hear things that like that it's not real. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, you can just ask anybody who's a farmer and they'll tell you. Mm-hmm. 2007, we were harvesting around, you know, second, third week of October. You know, now it's kind of right at the beginning of September, first week of September. I mean, and that's true for everybody, mm-hmm. right? You've, you've really seen the progression of it and how things have changed. You know, it's like, we pick early, you know, I think hopefully standards in winemaking will force people's hands to pick a lot earlier because the world's just a hotter place. And if you don't pick early, then you get these big alcoholic things. And, and you see that, right? Like, you know, I always talk about the relationship, you know, we're in the Willamette Valley. And so we're always talking about a relationship to California. And, you know, I talk about how the closer you are to the equator, the warmer it is. Yeah. But what I would have to say is in Oregon, we kind of had hit some form of identity crisis, you know, 2012 considered one of the best vintages ever started off, you know, picture perfect. 13 was hotter than 12, but then we got a big old rainstorm at the end uh, and that kind of set harvest back, you know, five or six weeks. And then you roll into 14, 15, each year being hotter than the next year. Mm. And for other people, you know, I I would have to say it is, it is a little, it was nice in, in some ways to not always have to be checking the weather, you know, and, and that it's, you know, it's damp, it's cloudy, you know, it's wet. It was nice to be able to wear shorts. It was nice to have the sun shining. It was nice that things could be planned because the sun was going to be out and it was much easier. I was done at six o'clock, you know, for my part, right? You know, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, versus having fruit come in through all parts of the night and being processed. So it's very real and it's in the back of my mind. And I, I, for me, it'll just be interesting to see how it forces people's hands to change their style of winemaking and obviously when they pick fruit. Mm. In the Willamette Valley, we hadn't experienced that kind of heat ever. That was something that was very new for us. And sometimes when I talk about identity crisis, some wines I felt lost the things that made them unique to this particular valley because now of the heat. And now we 
swayed in. It was in this no man's land that, you know, was it California? Was it Oregon? You know, mm. where's this from kind of thing? And so now things, you know, I, I would have to say that over the last couple of years, it hasn't been as hot and uh, things that kind of seem to get back to normal, but it is overall much warmer than when we originally started. Mm-hmm. You know, people are buying further north. You know, you see that all the time. Right. You know, we talk about, will India <laughs> eventually be a great place to, to grow wine? You see uh, the United Kingdom, this new fascination and hotspot for making sparkling wines now right. that are, are gaining recognition and I must say are, are quite tasty. Well, as a segue a little bit to, to your business, you know, you launched your newest venture right before the pandemic. Correct. Tell us a bit about what that was like. And, and while many people pulled back in their business efforts to kind of wait and see where things went, it seems like you went, you know, full steam ahead and took the opportunity. I think you're, you're quite an optimist. So maybe you can give us a little bit about the experience the last few months with your new projects. Correct. I'd have to say that I am an optimist. I, I mean, to get to where I came from, to where I am now, you always had this to feel like it's got to get better. It, it, this is not mm-hmm. as good as it gets for me, right? This is great, but I want to continue to keep moving. You know, this project didn't really, you know, it started much earlier than the beginning of January 2020. January 2020, it was kind of like my comeback to restaurants, but as an operator. Uh, we opened a small little, what we call in a ham bar mm. in Brooklyn, right around the corner from where we lived. It's called Ann Sons. It is named after, you know, I think it's an homage to, to my sons, my four sons, uh, the sons that we've lived in this neighborhood for over a decade, for the sons of this neighborhood, for America's sons. It is an uh, American ham bar. And so everything that we serve here is, you know, so it's a celebration of American food heritage. Uh, American country ham. So we've been curing hams, not us, not me personally, but the Americas for hundreds of years. You know, there was a cheese revolution that kind of came to really to light in 2005. Uh, and we've been making wine here in America, you know, since the 50s. And so I wanted to put all of those things under one roof. Uh, very reminiscent right. of the ham bars that you see in Barcelona and Spain, right? It's it's tough to find a an American wine in one of those places, uh, let alone an Italian wine or anything like that. And I wanted to, to do something similar to that. And also to show the world that, you know, American country ham deserves the same pedestal and spotlight that prosciutto does and that Iberico ham does. And so I wanted to treat it in the same way. Why are we so obsessed with sort of Italian prosciutto and, you know, we go to Buon Italia to buy it and all these things. I mean, why aren't we getting just as good ham here? It just hasn't been talked about in the same way, right? We always romanticize about things that aren't ours, like other cultures, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they do it better because they do it. And it's funny, ask any Italian, they'll tell you that they make the best ham. Like, they, you know, they, they pull no punches. It's like, uh, what is this stuff they make in America, right? Their sense of nationalism about the things that they create and do are on another level and, you know, and, and fun, you know, and fun. And so I just think that we, we've always romanticized about about other cultures and about the things that they do and create um, that somehow we felt like we weren't doing the same. And even price point, you know, American country hams cost more, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And they're local. They're like right here, upstate New York, like in the South, and they've been doing it for years. And so I just wanted to shed light on that. And I've had this idea for many years. We actually signed the lease for this place back in 2017 at the beginning. So it took three years to get open. You know, so a little bit of fault of my own. 
I got really busy with my other job. And then as we started construction, we ran into a little, little bit of a, a roadblock with the DOB. And so we had an audit and all this other kind of stuff. But we opened um, January 16th of 2020. And uh, it was great. Uh, it was two months. I mean, almost two months exact. Everybody came. It was packed. It was, it was really awesome. It was really great. You know, I kind of live in like a kind of a sleepy neighborhood uh, right on the other side of Prospect Park. And what you didn't see were Ubers full of people pulling up to restaurants to get out to eat. Mm. That wasn't happening in our neighborhood. And, um, and I got to see that. And we got to, you know, some ham makers came first trip to New York. You know, they get off the plane, come directly here. And we, you know, we shoot the shit for two hours, talking ham, wine, all these things. And then they get in the car and they go stay at the plaza. You know what I mean? It's kind of like this, you know, it's like, oh, first we're going to stop in Brooklyn first to eat. And then we're going to go to Manhattan to stay. And, you know, it was just really great. And I, you know, I felt like the roadblocks and the things that we ran into didn't kill my spirit to, to build. Mm. This whole idea of, of always walking into a place and telling my wife, you know what? I could own a place like this, right? And, and then to one day actually do it. Mm. And so to build this little thing was, you know, a great sense of pride for me. And it connected to pride at this time of like, you know, it's pretty hard to be American right now. Correct. If you have politics like ours. And, and you may have seen in that moment that, no, this is not your America. There's an America that I see. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious about that in terms of the domestic product. Well, you know, and, you know, my wife is, is American. She's not very patriotic um, in that sense. You know, I grew up in a military family. We didn't talk politics at the dinner table. That wasn't, that's not what we did. And so, and what I've always learned is no matter who was in power, you continue to push forward. With this American theme out on the forefront, you know, we did receive some, you know, where someone was like, oh, you know, I was like, this is not, uh, you know, make America great kind of thing. This is to celebrate the greatness of America and what we've been able to create in a celebration through the food lens and through food culture. Mm. And so that's really what I wanted to celebrate. And, you know, and, and people do it all the time. I mean, it's like you see there's Italian restaurants. I didn't, I didn't feel, and also I felt like I didn't need to justify any of that, First right? And, you know, it was yeah. me wanting to do everything's local, you know, local artists, woodworkers, all of those things and just saying, you know, hey, this is how I want to spend my money and I, I really want to celebrate these things in the same way that I see my Spanish comrades doing it and my colleagues in Italy and in Europe and, and those things and, and, and really create something that I felt like not only could my neighborhood be proud of, but, but the food industry could be proud of. And then you took a pivot, right? I mean, then this whole thing happens and... So I wouldn't actually really even call it a pivot. So originally what happened was I was looking for a space on the street I got a space, and that's actually the space next door. It's all in the same building. It's two storefronts. Mm. And as we got the one space, you know, we were like, okay, we're going to do this ham bar over there. But the landlord called me, and he said, well, the other space is not rented. You can't connect them in any way. And so I was like, and I talked to a friend, and he's like, dude, that rent is really cheap. You should, I mean, if anything, you could put mailboxes in there. You know what I mean? Like, he's like, you should just take it. You know, a very New York thing to say. And I was like, okay, I'll take it. And so what we end up doing is switching. And the, actually the ham bar is actually in the one spot. But what we always wanted to do was to have a little provision store. Mm. So we wanted a place that if you liked what we were doing here, 
there was a place next door that you could buy all the things and recreate at your home. And that's kind of how this whole thing started. You know, I would be on the road, I don't know, 47 weeks out of the year, Thanksgiving would come and then that would be it for my traveling. So, you know, I would be able to spend, you know, the holiday season catching up with friends and having them over and these kind of things. And then I bought this antique meat slicer that was in our dining room that looked like some medieval uh, torture device. And we would slice ham on it and talk about it. And Thanksgiving was this interesting thing for us where I was like, well, it's an American holiday, but like I'm drinking French champagne and all these things. And then we started to dive into drinking a lot of more older American wines and, and it was fun and, and a theme. So what we decided to do was to create uh, the store called Ann Sons. And this, the one side is called the buttery, which is like our larder. Uh, this side is called the ham bar. And so, which looks like a pivot for most people. They're like, well, can't we get the menu items from the ham bar? And I'm like, yes and no, none of the hot stuff because that restaurant is actually closed due to the Sydney ordinance in New York. We just opened another business. We opened the buttery, which wasn't scheduled to open until right about now. Right. And so we decided to open that, that business online and virtually. Fantastic. And so in that time where you saw New York restaurants making a pivot with the new law that they could actually sell wine and other alcoholic beverages to go, we already offered those things. You know, I had in between signing the lease and opening this place, which was three years, we bought a wine shop on the same street. Wow. We don't sell any wine, we, you know, so the ham bars has been completely closed and people are like, hey, well, why don't you sell any wine? And we're like, you know, down the street, all the wine that we ever had here is, is there. You can buy it from there. We have free delivery. So, you know, we just opened other businesses or had other businesses that we kind of, you know, the following and the people and the momentum that we were building over those two months and meeting new people and people coming to us, you know, we kind of fed them to our other businesses it's amazing that it's so clustered there in this one place instead of kind of, you know, spreading your liability or thinking about risk. You really just kind of looked at it and said, this is home. We're going to do this. We live here. We have a brownstone right around the corner. And that, you know, I mean, I mean, really, like I left my house to come over here to talk to you guys like seven minutes before I was on the call. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. I did want to ask you because you've been so focused throughout this whole time as Spencer and I have actually, and it's been amazing for us. How does focusing on work kind of help you get through moments of crisis? How do you see work as sort of therapy? Well, I mean, it's everything in my life, right? It's, it's the cure has always been in the work for whatever ailed me, maybe to my detriment, right? Like I could be getting evicted, but I, w I went to work. Like, you know what I mean? All the other things that were happening in the life, like it was the one place that I could be mm. that I could shut out all the noise and concentrate on this thing. And you know, me and my wife always talk about eyes on the prize, and that's whenever we, whenever we come distracted or frustrated or anything like that. It's like we know where we want to go, and so we just stay focused on that. And so to be able to continue to work, I'm always working, but it's always different kind of work. Uh, th these, these things are new because these are more physical things that I actually have to be at. And that's kind of keep me before, you know, I spent a lot of time like on a plane because I was just hosting dinners and traveling and going and doing all these things. But to me, it's essential. You know, I mean, I just told you guys that I, you know, I just came back from family holiday. We don't, the V word is a bad word in, in my house. We don't say vacation, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I, you know, I joke around all the time. It's like, so what's going on here? Everybody thinks they're on vacation. We're not on vacation. We're working here because I work from home. You know, our, my studio is in the bottom floor of our home. But, you know, to me, it's just always been that thing. It, it gives one a sense of purpose, mm. especially when you find that thing that drives you. 
in the end, you know, it's like I want my life to mean something and I want, I want to say that I made the world a better place by having had said life. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know what that is, but I think through, I don't know, through feeding people, through putting out things that inspire me, that, you know, hopefully that that inspires a lot of other people. And, and that's kind of how we felt. But I've always been, you know, my mother-in-law thought, does Andre hate me? Because every time I show up, he never comes up right away. He's like immersed in work. And I was like, no, actually the opposite. You're kind of my muse, right? Because you kind of diffuse the situation in the house. And when creativity strikes, like it's great to be able to harness it and, 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 and react to it, right? Versus like before when I had a, a nine to five job, something hit you and you had to all hold back the excitement and everything until you got to a place where you could actually physically work on something. Mm. So having the time to be able to react to when you have a creative spurt or something else, you know, I wrote and, <laughs> and created, you know, a children's culinary coloring book, you know, and it wasn't for children, it was more for adults. If, you know, it's the world's first culinary coloring book slash activity book. And, and it was literally in the second that I walked down the stairs that I had had the idea, but I realized that it, it was more wine focused. And I was like, it should be about chefs. And I mumbled something to my wife and I turned right back up and went back upstairs. And five weeks later, I was done. Mm. That whole idea of having a sense of purpose is meaningful to me. And, um, and that's how it's really helped me kind of deal with any situation that I'm having and, and being optimistic. You know, I started our wine company in a downturn in the economy. Yeah, 2008. Yeah, when everybody was like, are you guys crazy? And I was like, I don't have anything else. And if I fail, I don't have that far to fall because everybody is. Mm-hmm. But if I can make it now, then when it's, when it's good, it's good. And, you know, and something like being in the alcohol business, you know, you know, it's one of those things. People continue to drink to drown their sorrows or to celebrate, you know, victories. And so for us, that was, you know, I just didn't think of it that way. And every day, you know, it's every day, you know, it's big picture, but some days you have to break that down so it's not overwhelming. You say, hey, I want to build this great company. And it looks like a daunting task for me, at least it did at the beginning. Institution, companies that like, that have been around longer than I've been alive, like Lehman Brothers, that you're like, wow, they are no longer. And then something like this, it's kind of the same feeling, right? Like where you said, ah, it would never happen. Like the whole world would have to come to a standstill. And it did. Mm. But I take pride. I'm still standing. And, you know, my thing is, is that my community is supporting this thing. My community, my neighbors, all of these people. I mean, we had somebody ride their bike from the Upper East Side to come get some ham. We have people (laughs) calling from North Carolina, South Carolina, from the South, asking if we ship ham to them. I'm like... (laughs) <laughs> They're there. I can give you guys address. Like, like, no, go visit these people, right? They're like right there. Like, you don't have yeah. to get it from a New Yorker in Brooklyn, right? <laughs> like, you're like, you're living it. It's right there. And uh, so, you know, it's just been, it's just been interesting. You're like, you, I just have to be optimistic that like, there will be another day. I will get to open this place. And mm-hmm. it's hard for me to believe that it won't look very close to what it looked like before. You know what I mean? Things will change and people, people are social creatures by nature, so they still are gonna go out. Mm-hmm. It's just gonna be precautions that we take that look differently. I'm not sure, me personally, I don't wanna go out to eat at a restaurant if I have to sit with a shield between me and the person sitting, some other person next to me. 
And that's just me personally, just to, so you know, I haven't, I haven't been anywhere to eat either. <laughs> and then, you know, that's really because, you know, I, I really had to ask my wife, you know what I mean? I was like, I was like, Hey, maybe I'll come see you guys. And I was like, you know what? I should probably ask my wife, is she okay with that? Yeah. We have four children at home. So it's just like, okay. So I haven't gotten on the plane and I probably won't for the rest of the year. Mm. You were a head sommelier per se. And I wanted to bring that up in the context of restaurants in the sense that do you think post pandemic, we're going to see restaurants becoming less formal, maybe more community based, similar to the sort of culture you're talking about of, of the neighborhood restaurant, a sort of return to the neighborhood? You know, I believed in that. I had always believed in the neighborhood restaurant. And I felt like what you were going to see were big time chefs opening smaller neighborhood places because it just felt natural. And you, you kind of see that where you see someone like Danny Myers with his, it's called Daily Provisions or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you're starting mm -hmm. to see that him opening those kind of things. I think, yeah, maybe there'll be less formal restaurants, less of those, but I, I feel like there will always be a place for them, right? Always. I think there will always be a place. Who doesn't like to be doted on? Like that is like awesome and great. Mm -hmm. I think you will still have them, but I'm just not, I'm not sure. I was just reading an article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that was, you know, Danielle had just opened up. So a lot of those people are just waiting it out, right? It, it mm -hmm. feels like they have the means and their clientele or the, or the people who like ran for the heels for a lot of them, <laughs> right? That were like, hey, we're just going to hang out here. You know, especially in New York with a lot of those people, Manhattan is basically emptying out. A lot of those patrons of those restaurants aren't in town. So I think mm -hmm. for a lot of them, they said, hey, we'll just stay closed. But I think um, Danielle just recently opened and they have some seating right out front. Seems to be working. So I, I do believe that they will exist, but maybe less. Yeah. Where do you see the um, future of the industry going on the whole? Like, how do you imagine a more resilient restaurant industry? You know, what's interesting to me is, is that the world did have to come to a standstill in order mm. for people to listen. Mm. And I think for a lot of people to be heard. And I think the changes that we make in our country will only trickle down into restaurants and make those equally as great. Right. I mean, you're starting to see a lot of inclusion. Definitely, you're starting to see people talk about, you know, shedding light on where they've gotten recipes and where they come from and the appropriation. Those kind of things are seem to be people are starting to talk about those and wanting to know mm -hmm. those things, you know, does take out. I mean, you look at someone like Grant at Alenio, you know, one of the best restaurants in the world that had to resort to making takeout. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think for a lot of them, they realize that it, none of those things are above them. And that people still want to have, even though it is, they're dining in at their own home, there's still different budgets and different things that people, experiences that people want. I do feel, I feel confident about it. I feel, mm, mm. I feel energetic on, and excited about what's, what the possibilities could be on the other side. Yeah. It's a moment to rethink and to sort of invent and innovate. Do you think this period's also created an opening of sort of awareness around our food systems? And how are you thinking about food systems in this context? Yeah, I mean, we've only bought local, you know what I mean? That goes back to it, you know? I just bought a flour mill the other day. Mm. And so we are opening a bakery. So mm -hmm. I just got the keys, I just signed the lease, <laughs> flour mill arrives. And like, you know, just still opening people's ideas that like buying local and just buying what you need. When you talk about food systems, like all you have to do is look at toilet paper, right? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, why would there be a run on toilet paper? And hey, let me let you in on a secret. You can cut a roll of paper towel in half. Like, just buy what you need 
and everybody will have enough. And I, for us, it's, it's just always been local. Like if I know where this is coming from, that it's helping this person, and it's not a run on it, it just, it just felt and has felt much more safe mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways and, and really has kind of built the confidence of our community around the things and the projects that we're making. And the whole idea of spending a little bit more on something of quality versus spending less and getting a whole bunch of crap. And so, you know, our next thing is more about flour. You know, flour is dead food, right? You need freshly milled flour, right? It should, you should be using it in the same sense of using as you buy produce. Mm. So with a two-week, best three-day, but, you know, two-week span, you know, otherwise the flour goes dead. It loses all its nutritional value of why it's being milled right away. And so, you know, so it, th- those kind of things still keep us moving forward, keeps us exciting, and it's knowing that where we buy our, buy our hogs from, those kind of things. You'll be feeding sourdough to the neighborhood with the neighborhood's microbiome. <laughs> you know what I mean? Another reason to be totally local. I did want to bring up, you know, you've been a pioneer in the wine business with a huge amount of success. You know, just one of the real leaders of the last decade. Yet as a person of color, you've, you've encountered a ton of friction and racism, I'm sure. And I wanted to not end before we kind of talked about some of these experiences and your perspective on them, because some of what we've read has just been really inspiring. And I wanted to make sure that we had time for that on this episode. Yeah. I mean, it's no different than my regular life. I always like to talk about that first, right? It's no different than any other day of my life, anything that I decided to do. And so at an earlier age, at a young age, you know, I had to decide, was I going to be angry about this? Or was I going to, how was I going to use this? I got a chance to choose how I wanted to feel about anything that happened to me. You know, I could choose to be a victim. I could, you know what I mean? I could choose all these things. But I chose to make those things make me powerful. In the same way, you know, you, I worked at one of the best restaurants in the world. Shit, when I was at the French Laundry, it was the best restaurant in the world. Mm. And you would walk up to the table and those people didn't think that you were the sommelier. But I chose to make those moments empowering. Like, I got you. You didn't even see me coming, right? You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, and so that, like, that helped me build up my confidence. Like, you didn't even see me coming. That gave me the fuel to fight, to keep fighting and to, like, to keep pushing on and to use that energy to power the things that I wanted to build in the world. I was doing another interview and we're talking about diversity. And I was like, well, you know, diversity is a two-way street. It, It makes everybody's life different enriched and you know and, and it helps you to deploy empathy you know, you understand where other people are coming from or where they're from and their struggles and what things might be but i decided that i wanted to have diversity in my life which meant that most of the time i was the only person who looked like me in that room and that was something that i had to be comfortable with and so for me it's always it's always been that way i'm i'm, I'm comfortable in that because i felt like i've i decided to to have diversity in my life to to enrich my life. And I have all my, you know, my cousins are like, so you do what? So what do you do for a living? You know what I mean? You know, when I was a sommelier, you know, they couldn't say it. Then they were like, so you taste wine and you get paid. So Pop-Pop said that you get, you make more money than, than everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, they, so it was always just something, something that was, that was interesting. And, um, you know, my mom, you know, she's like, I brought you up to get along with everybody. Mm-hmm. That's always been our thing. Well, two things that struck me so deeply were one, the empathy that you you actually have the ability to see that it's their problem, not yours. Absolutely. And, and second of all, that you know, no one can make you. What's that amazing quote? No one can make you feel less than unless you give them permission. Correct. 
and those two ideas are actually quite novel in terms of a progressive perspective mm -hmm. on it that, that I hope gets talked about more. Yeah, you know, I mean, you had to have a thick skin. You, you showed up to private school, right? People making fun mm -hmm. of you. Like, you had to under, understand all of those things that made you who you are and to realize, like, okay, all right, this is, this is what it's going to be. And the problem I have being on panels, you know, because I stopped doing interviews about diversity or people ask mm -hmm. me on a show because I felt like, well, wait a minute, it's not even fair to ask me how to solve this problem. We still, people of color, we still bear the, the burden of racism even now, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Where, where, where it's easy for someone else to get, forget, you know, something in our industry, you know, there's a institution called the Master, Court of the Master Sommeliers, and a person of color was taking one of the courses, and one of the masters just insisted that everybody called them master, address them as master so-and-so. And it was so insensitive, but here we are still in 2020, I think this is 2017 or something like that, but the, the fact that it's, it's like, this person's story still is bearing the burden of racism, whereas the other person was so insensitive to be like, ah, it's nothing. And then you have people, well, you know, it's about a craftsmanship, and it is, but Plumber Joe doesn't ask you to call him Master Joe. It's one of those things, and sometimes I feel like, you know, we still have a long way to go, but like the idea that we're still talking about it is great. Mm. And my thing is, is that it's not a problem that I created. It's just not, I, I have no control over how I look, how I came out, right? You know what I mean? Like I just have no control over that thing. So I don't have a problem. What society would, would have you think is, is that you, you create a problem about yourself, about the way you look. That's why you got people you know, taking baths with soap and bleach, like all this other stuff, trying to alter their appearance to fit in or to pass. And that's so messed up on a level. It's like, I can't have a problem with the way I look because this, it's just who I am. And so it's, it's everybody else's problem. Yeah, the clarity of not accommodating for others' racism is is just so crystal clear yeah. the way you describe yeah. that, which 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 is beautiful. You know, with Black Lives Matter, I'm sure you've seen, I hope you've seen some of the positive effects of that. Have you felt an uptick in business, you know, from the wave of support? I have. And you know what? And I, and I felt a special kind of, of way about it. I felt a way about it. You know, I'm a prideful person. Yeah. And, I, and it felt like a handout in some ways. And, you know, and I had to, you know, I say lay on someone's sofa, but I had to make some phone calls to a therapist and, and really kind of like work through my feelings with that. Mm -hmm. It took a while for me to kind of understand like, okay, what's happening? Okay, this is not a, this is not a handout. And, and, and to figure out how I was going to respond to it. But, you know, to me, it's an opportunity to show other people why I'm great. Mm. My fear was is that when things are labeled black owned to everybody else in the world, it means that they're made for black people only. Mm. And that is not the case. Uh, we've made wine for whoever wanted to drink it. You know, my track record of being successful wasn't because people who looked like me supported what I was doing. It was because people who got it supported me and that's how I got to where I was. And, you know, and I think that was my little hurdle that I needed to get over to, to understand. And now, you know, it's easy for me to say, okay, this isn't a great opportunity for me to show them why I am who I am and why, why I am great. You know, I'm thankful and I feel very blessed. So as we work through this pandemic and eventually, who knows when, but eventually we come out of this, what's your greatest hope? What's giving you the most hope right now and going forward? Um, that we realize that we were all, that we're all human beings and we all have to share the space that we live in and that we, that we all need to be better people, better humans, and that it's about humanity first. And, and 
what better way or not a better way <laughs> a way than through a pandemic to show that we're all at risk. And, you know, hopefully this will bring us all together as stewards of, of this earth to celebrate being here, but also talk about how future generations can continue to celebrate to, to be here. You know, not just my children, but my children's children's children, uh, that this place is still around. And this gives us an opportunity to talk about how we treat people, but not only to talk about how we treat others and, and people, but also how we treat the earth and, you know, and where we can be in that. And, you know, it, like, because we came to a, a standstill, they're talking about how that was great for the earth, right? You know, you know what I mean? And uh, so it's just interesting, but I just, I wish that people would take a moment and to understand that we're all human. None of this is given to us and that, that we're only here for a very short time and that we should make the best of it and treat people with respect and, and have empathy for um, our fellow humans. Mm. Andre, thank you so much. It was really nice to talk to you today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.